Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. It's been 3,247 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 328 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that the power struggle between military leaders aligned with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu versus those aligned to private military company or PMC Wagner Group head Yevgeny Prigozhin will continue. Second, we maintain that the ongoing information warfare between the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, and PMC Wagner is a byproduct of the strife within the Kremlin. Third, we maintain that the current winner of the ongoing infighting between factions loyal to Shoigu versus Prigozhin is Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has shifted negative attention back to the Ministry of Defense. Fourth, we assess there is a very high risk of punitive missile strikes on civilians and civilian infrastructure from January 19th to 21st, and that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Fifth, we maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Sixth, we maintain that Russian forces led by PMC Wagner Group have taken the initiative on the Solodar-Bakhmut axis, but remain largely defensive throughout the rest of Ukraine. Seventh, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective, and can only mount effective defensive operations, despite the slow success on the Solidar axis. Eighth, we maintain there will be a second wave of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation in January or February 2023. And finally, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of a major offensive operation is only a remote possibility. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. Across Luhansk, there was a lull in fighting with very little information shared. On the Svatova axis, a video showed a Russian T-90M main battle tank, or MBT, destroyed between Novoselivsky and Kuzimivka by direct fire from Ukrainian troops. The final blow was delivered by 155mm artillery. The video supports that fighting is continuing on the P-7 highway as assessed on January 15th, and Ukrainian forces remain in Novoselivsky. 
On the Kremina axis, mercenaries with Wargonzo reported that Russian forces attempted a counteroffensive on Chervonopopivka, but did not report the outcome. Serhi Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported fighting continued in the area of Kremina, and Russian propagandist Radion Miroshnik reported that the city has been under constant mortar and artillery attack by Ukrainian forces. We made some small adjustments to the war map based on better intelligence. On the Lysychansk axis, Ukrainian forces repelled a Russian attack on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk. Based on terrain analysis, we made a small adjustment to the map, expanding the area of Ukrainian control southeast of the town. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, disputed the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Joint Center for Control and Coordination, or JCCC, claim that the town of Novopiskov was struck either by rockets fired by HIMARS or Alder-M Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or MLRS. Ukrainian government officials claim the blast was caused by an S-300 anti-aircraft missile that failed after launch and crashed into the town. In the January 15th Situation Report and in yesterday's episode, we questioned the veracity of the LNR claims of a strike on the settlement, which is over 90 kilometers from the known line of conflict. Quick assessment. We maintain that we cannot conclude the type of weapon used or decide on what kind of warhead without physically inspecting the site. We also maintain our assessment that it was impossible for rockets fired by HIMARS to reach the town, and the use of Alder-M is highly unlikely. In northeast Donetsk, on the Siversk axis, the GSAFU reported that Russian forces continued to attack Verknokamyanskia from the Luhansk-Donetsk administrative border, but remained unable to advance. Fighting for control of Spirna also continued with no change in the situation. Based on available information, we assess that Russian forces have captured Solidar and the satellite town of Sil. PMC Wagner Telegram channels shared a picture of a squad of mercenaries wearing Ukrainian uniforms at the railroad station in Sil. Although the GSAFU reported fighting continued in the town in their morning report, Ukrainian forces likely lost control during the day yesterday. Mercenaries with Rybar claimed that Russian forces, including regular Russian military and PMC Wagner, were expanding control, quote, in the vicinity of Solidar. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled an attack on Krasnopolivka, north of the Seal railroad station. Southwest of Solidar, Russian sources claimed there was fighting on the, quote, outskirts of Blachodatne. Ukrainian and Russian sources reported fighting in the area of Krasnohora, with a Ukrainian source stating that Russian forces were, quote, advancing closer. Fighting continued northeast, east, and southeast of Bakhmut, with PMC Wagner making marginal gains in the forest plantation and dachas in the northeast and advancing from the garbage dump to the recycling sorting center in the southeast. Several Russian sources claimed there was fighting in Yahidne, which is geographically impossible. There continue to be no reports from any source of fighting in the southern part of the city or Opitne. South of Bakhmut, Rybar, Wargonzo, and PMC Wagner denied reports that Russian forces had entered and or captured Klishivka. Wagner's social media channels called the reports, quote, premature, and said fighting continued, while Rybar stated, quote, 
Ukrainian command is making every effort to hold the settlement. End quote. The GSAFU and the Ukrainian channel Deep State reported continued fighting, with Deep State claiming Russian forces had improved positions. We expanded the no-man's land west of Opitne. We maintain our assessment that Russian success in this area has been exaggerated. If PMC Wagner or Russian troops reached the settlement, there would be picture reports. On the southern edge of the Bakhmut axis, the GSAFU reported that fighting continued in Mayorsk. In southwest Donetsk on the New York axis, the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, continued attempts to advance on Novobakhmutivka and were unsuccessful. On the Avdiivka axis, a January 15th video validated our assessment of the location of the line of conflict near Kamyanka, with Ukrainian and Russian troops fighting near the H-20 highway. South of Avdiivka, there was no change in the situation. Elements of the 1st Army Corps tried to advance out of Opitne, the one north of the Donetsk International Airport. Fighting continued in Vodyana, and separatists failed to advance in Pervomaiske. Russian forces also failed to move closer to the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelsky. On the Marinka axis, the 1st Army Corps tried to advance on Krasnohorivka, fought positional battles near the center of Marinka, and attempted an advance on Pobida. On the Vuladar axis, the 1st Army Corps renewed attempts to advance on Novomikhailivka and maintained the almost nine-year tradition of being unsuccessful. Russian forces also attempted to advance on Prechestivka, also without success. On the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border, Russian troops attempted to advance on Veleka Novosilka and were pushed back to their earlier defensive positions. Insurgents in Mariupol reported that 12 Russian MBTs and 10 trucks with troops moved through the city, heading toward Berdyansk in Zaporizhia. In Russian-occupied Makiivka, DNR officials broke operational security, or OPSEC, by providing a battle damage assessment after an apparent HIMARS strike. No information was provided on casualties, and they weren't included in the pictures. In occupied Donetsk, an apparent HIMARS strike destroyed a liquor distillery holding military equipment in the Kalininsky district. Civilian areas adjacent to the building were heavily damaged, including a grocery store, with DNR officials claiming two people were killed. The purge of the judicial branch of the DNR continued, with Minister of Justice Sirovatko Yuri Nikolaevich dismissed by self-declared leader Denis Pushilin. No reason was given for the termination. Quick sidebar, what happened to the DNR 5 o'clock follies? We didn't make an editorial decision to stop reporting them. The DNR stopped posting them shortly after the new year. Huh, I wonder why. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was mutual shelling on the west and east banks of the Dnipro. Russian forces carried out 90 fire missions on free Ukraine, wounding 14, with 21 strikes in the city of Kherson. Unspecified, quote, critical infrastructure, civilian housing, shipyards, and medical facilities were hit by artillery shells and rockets fired by MLRS. There's more information on this in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. On the east bank of the Dnipro, occupied Kochovka and Oleshki were shelled. Ukrainian officials accused Russian forces of shelling Oleshki in a continued attempt to force remaining civilians to leave for Crimea, 
where they will face deportation to Russia. The OG pre-2014 Russia, not the Russia that Russia claims is Russia, but is obviously not really Russia. In Zaporizhia, the Russian MOD claimed Ukrainian forces attempted to advance on Stepova and were unsuccessful. No details were given, but this was likely positional fighting, special operation forces, or a DRG unit. No other source, Russian or Ukrainian, reported fighting in the area. Once again, there were no reports on the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. A January 13th HIMAR strike on Sosnivka, northeast of occupied Melitopol, destroyed a Russian fuel depot and an unspecified number of military vehicles. There were no reports of casualties. A brief video recorded the sound of a large explosion in occupied Berdyansk. There was no other information available at the time of recording. Otherwise, Russia and Ukraine exchanged sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv, with Ukrainian officials reporting that Russian forces fired 130 shells, mortars, and rockets along the entire line of conflict. Quick note, that's close to the number of fire missions that Russian forces completed in the Solidar area. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, the composition of the Black Sea fleet didn't change, with 16 ships on patrol, including six surface vessels and one kilo-class submarine capable of launching caliber cruise missiles. Operational Command South, or OCS, clarified that the deployed ships could fire up to 30 caliber cruise missiles. In Russian-occupied Sevastopol, air defense was very active, with local officials claiming that 10 Ukrainian drones were shot down. Vitaly Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Russian forces shelled the coastal city of Ochakiv again, killing one civilian. In north and northeast Ukraine, we assessed on January 14th that the Russian MOD claims of Ukrainian attacks on Tokarivka and Peshotravneve called into question the status of Vilshana. The GSAFU reported that Vilshana was shelled for the second day in a row. Both militaries are maintaining tight operational security on the line of conflict in Kharkiv, so we can't verify the situation beyond what each belligerent reports. On the Russian front, air defense was active in Bilgorod, Russia, with officials tight-lipped on what happened. A video recorded a loud explosion followed by several smaller ones. Another video showed what appeared to be possible missile fragments found in the snow. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Emergency power outages continued in nine regions of Ukraine, Due to the January 14th missile attacks, increased electrical consumption as people returned to work, and poor weather in parts of the country, which caused wind and ice damage to power lines. Deputies of the Verkhovna Rada, which is Ukraine's parliament, have asked the head of the president's office, Andrei Yermak, to dismiss presidential adviser Alexei Arestovich. Deputy Alexei Khoncherenko started collecting signatures on a formal statement calling for Arestovich's firing. The mayor of Dnipro, Boris Filatov, said that, quote, 
the Security Service of Ukraine and Counterintelligence are obliged to respond, end quote, to the words of Arostovich about the Russian missile strike in Dnipro. Arostovich walked back his January 14th claim that the KH-22 missile that struck a Dnipro apartment complex was deflected by Ukrainian air defenses, claiming that he misspoke due to, quote, fatigue. This is not the first time that Arostovich has misspoken on military matters. Responding to a request made by Ukrainian officials last year, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, has established a permanent presence at the South Ukraine and Rivne nuclear power plants and the Chernobyl site. Two IAEA inspectors have been assigned to each facility and will be rotated. Ukraine requested a permanent presence after the Russian Ministry of Defense made a now-debunked and completely forgotten claim that Ukraine had produced dirty bombs and would use them for a false flag attack. Our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, Kremlin pariah and failed Mobik, Igor Gherkin-Strelkov, went full doomer on his Telegram account and brought back his Russian MOD zinger, Planet of the Pink Ponies. I don't know, it's one of his things. Saying, quote, No matter how much the Kremlin inhabitants of the Planet of the Pink Ponies would like to seat Medvedchuk, or some other similar piece of shit, on the Ukrainian throne, this will not happen. Simply because with all these systemic Medvedchuks, Gerasimovs, Shoigus, etc., these are not about winning. These can only lose everything even in the most favorable situation. And our problem is that the situation is very far from being favorable. Rather, it is strictly the opposite. End quote. It's unclear why Strelkov is not celebrating the capture of Solidar, but we maintain that since May, his analysis and predictions have been extremely accurate. We really hope he doesn't get a five-point defenestration or an invitation to have tea with President Putin. We would rather see him where he fears he will end up, at The Hague, in handcuffs. A misinformation campaign spread panic in occupied Crimea and Donetsk, with Russian social media channels sharing a recording of an unknown person claiming they work for the gas company, telling a child to turn on all the burners on the stove to, quote, test the system. Russian social media channels claimed the calls were being made by Ukrainian intelligence to cause widespread fires. Russian officials were trying to squash the panic because the call occurred almost five years ago and was recorded in Kazakhstan. In Belarus, Russia has deployed approximately 11,000 troops and 50 aircraft, which isn't a significant change from November. The Belarusian government announced another round of readiness drills that includes joint flight and tactical training of Air Force units. Ukrainian officials don't believe this is a prelude to a cross-border attack, but are concerned that the exercises could serve as a cover to make another round of missile attacks on Ukraine. United Kingdom's Defense Secretary Ben Wallace announced that the UK was providing Ukraine with the largest military aid package to date. We shared the list in yesterday's breaking news segment, but I'd like to draw your attention to the, quote, hundreds of armored and mine-resistant ambush protection vehicles, including 100 FV-432 Mark III Bulldog Armored Personnel Carriers, or APCs. The tracked Bulldog APC only requires two crew and can carry up to 10 dismounts in its standard configuration. It is a true APC equipped only with a 7.62mm general-purpose machine gun as its main armament, but it can be configured with various other weapon systems, 
The Mark III modernization program started in 2006 to meet combat challenges in Iraq and Afghanistan. It included reactive armor, armor to the undercarriage to survive landmines and IEDs, and radio jamming equipment. During his speech, Secretary Wallace addressed German reluctance to provide Leopard 2 tanks, saying, quote, After discussion with the United States and our European allies, it is hoped that the example set by the French and us will allow those countries holding Leopard tanks to donate as well. I know there are a number of countries wanting to do the same. No one is going it alone, as I have said. End quote. The United States started expanded military training for Ukrainian soldiers in Germany, intending to process 20,000 troops in 2023 through the five-week program that includes combined arms and urban warfare training. Speaking of urban warfare, let's talk about Russian mobilization. The Kremlin announced that foreigners who voluntarily enlist in the Russian military would automatically be given Russian citizenship. Previously, a person would have to wait three years, with the threshold lowered to one year last summer. Russian mill bloggers criticized the summer change, pointing out several avenues to semi-legally bribe your way to receiving a Russian passport. The new change provides a simpler path. Side effects of instant citizenship by enlistment may include frostbite, hypothermia, hearing or vision loss, uncontrolled bleeding, traumatic brain injury, loss of mobility or extremities, incontinence, and death. Quick sidebar, the Kremlin specifically says foreigners who voluntarily enlist. How many foreigners do they anticipate enlisting involuntarily? Is it a non-zero number? Russian mill blogger Visoki Govorit complained that Russian border officials were not allowing civilian cars and SUVs bought by donors for the Russian military into Ukraine. Sorry, into Russia. To be clear, I'm referring to the post-fake referendum Russia, which is in fact still Ukraine. Valery Gerasimov is shaking things up in Ukraine with a new decree requiring Russian troops to shave and maintain proper haircuts, have clean uniforms, and be otherwise presentable including frontline units in combat. Russian troops are also forbidden from using tablets or cell phones. Mill blogger Vladlin Tatarsky called the mandate, quote, intentional sabotage and an impossible standard. While cell phones and sharing live streams and videos have resulted in dozens, if not hundreds, of strikes on Russian troops, Tatarsky rightly points out the decree also prevents Russian forces from communicating, being able to operate drones, or using digital maps. If the Russian MOD provided their troops with military-grade radios, fixed the problems with the ERA communication system, didn't have Orlan 10 drone production destroyed by sanctions, and provided maps from this century, none of this would be an issue in the first place. PMC Wagner Telegram channel Reverse Side of the Metal mocked the order, making the most aggressive public statement against Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu without mentioning his name, to date, writing, quote, Someone in high offices decided to speed up the transition of the military to the Wagner Group, end quote. That's called saying the quiet part out loud. Russian state media claimed the first Poseidon nuclear torpedoes, allegedly capable of producing tidal waves over a thousand meters tall, had been built. The torpedoes will be deployed to the Russian submarine Bilgorod. It's important to note that the torpedoes have never been successfully tested. 
Other nations examined the possibility of using nuclear weapons to produce large tidal waves during open-air nuclear tests in the 1950s and 1960s. They concluded it was mostly impossible beyond very specific geographical areas due to several factors, not the least of which being the laws of physics. A Russian soldier in Melitopol walked drunk into a store and demanded that they sell him a bottle of alcohol. The employee presumably told him that they can't because it's illegal and the FSB will do terrible things to them if they sell alcohol to a soldier, so he set his service weapon to automatic, shot up the store, and threw a grenade inside after leaving. However, he was so very drunk he forgot to pull the pin. There was no information on whether the soldier was clean-shaven, had a military haircut, or wore a proper uniform. There are reports that Colonel General Alexei Dorofeyev, who was in charge of the FSB for the Moscow region, has joined the Unemployed Generals Club. Dorofeyev was allegedly fired and blamed for the intelligence failure that led to the bombing of the Kerch Bridge on October 8th. He was considered one of the most powerful men in Moscow because of his role, and in our assessment, the job opening is more fuel for the ongoing Kremlin Game of Thrones. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. At the time of recording, the death toll from the missile strike on a Nipro apartment complex had risen to 45, with 79 people injured, 28 still hospitalized, and 10 in serious or critical condition. Almost three days after the attack, searchers were still trying to locate 19 victims. In occupied Kherson, Russian telegram channels shared a graphic picture that some find disturbing of the extrajudicial execution of a civilian accused of collaborating with the Ukrainian military. Turkish ombudsman Sheref Malkoch reported that Russia and Ukraine were working on a prisoner-of-war swap that could involve up to a thousand people. Ukraine provided a list of 800 service members they wanted to be released, while Russia provided 200 names. In Bereslav, UNICEF delivered a 120-kilowatt generator which will restore the water supply in the region. In geopolitical news, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan spoke by telephone on Monday. The two leaders reportedly discussed finding a path to a peace agreement, reopening the Green Corridor border crossing in Zaporizhia, POW exchanges, and the Black Sea Grain Initiative. During the call, it was reported that Putin complained that Ukraine was being uncooperative after not honoring a request for a 36-hour ceasefire during Orthodox Christmas. Ignoring the fact that Russia launched a massive offensive on Solidar literal minutes after the alleged pause was going to begin. Republican Party State Senator Nathan Dom of Oklahoma said, quote, We don't want Ukrainian soldiers training here in Oklahoma, end quote claiming it would make the state, near the geographical center of the lower 48, a, quote, target for potential attacks, end quote. Other Republicans from Oklahoma distanced themselves from Dom, including Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat and six others, saying, quote, 
Oklahoma has had partnerships with military forces from partner countries to train and maintain the safety and security of the United States and other allied countries for decades. To cut these ties would be akin to jeopardizing our national security. The resolution that was issued by Dom does not speak for the vast majority of the Oklahoma Senate or Oklahomans, who welcome training exercises to defend the lands we love and our neighbors in other countries. We hope the troops from other countries currently training on our beloved military installations in Oklahoma feel welcomed and experience what makes our state the best in the country. End quote. Dom wasn't getting the reaction he expected on social media, yet he had the time to reply to each critical comment with memes from the TV show The Office. He further doubled down, claiming on social media that he didn't want missiles to hit Oklahoma by irresponsible Ukrainian troops killing people, quote, like in Poland, end quote. There's an editor's note here from David. It says, quote, Clearly, Senator Dom has spent zero minutes and seconds at any United States military facility where weapons training is done. I've spent time as an observer at Indian Head, Maryland, with American troops being trained in explosive ordnance disposal. Service members dealing with explosives are incredibly well-trained people with a strange sense of humor and what they consider fun, like making IEDs out of 155mm shells because to learn to defuse a bomb, you must learn how to make one. But to make things more interesting that particular day, they also placed a small boulder on top of the buried IED and then made bets on whose rock will land closest to the observation bunker, assuming the rock wasn't just blown to bits in the process. I will never forget one of the instructors, a large and rather old NCO who suddenly screamed for everyone to shut up, two to three seconds before one of the small boulders struck the bunker. I don't know how he knew or heard that rock coming down, but clearly he had experienced things. End quote. In economic news, the ruble gave up last week's gains with an exchange rate of 69 for one U.S. dollar. Western oil prices were unchanged, with WTI crude holding at $80 a barrel and Brent at $85. Russian Ural's crude was also unchanged, with a, quote, official price of $56 a barrel. The Russian Ministry of Finance reported the average selling price for Russian crude from December 15th to January 14th was $46.82 a barrel. A quick errors and omissions here. Apparently, this whole time, I have been saying something wrong. Instead of RBOB gasoline, it is, in fact, Arbob gasoline. Thank you for your understanding. And also, United States wholesale Arbob gasoline on the spot market was stable, holding at $2.52 a gallon or 67 cents a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures has collapsed, dropping to 54 euros per megawatt hour for February and March 2023 delivery, the lowest point since December 2021. The winter has been so warm in Western and Eastern Europe that almond trees and rose bushes are already blooming in Russian-occupied Crimea. I wonder if Russia is a little bit regretting that whole Europe is freezing to death ad campaign. Chicago SRW wheat futures declined to $7.30 a bushel for March 2023 delivery, the lowest point since September 2021. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone.
You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.